This is the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, and in this part of the green season, uh, in this cycle of readings, we're reading through the great stories of Genesis about the great patriarchs and matriarchs uh, that started all of this process, the great sweep of the history of salvation. And in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to go through a period of uh, a few weeks where we read uh, the parables of Jesus and talk about the meaning of these parables. So I thought I'd preach today on the reading from Genesis and on Matthew and leave Romans alone for this week. Although just to remind those of you who may not have been here last week, when you're struggling listening to this very tightly reasoned or uh, run-on sentence kind of stuff that Paul is famous for, uh, remember that his focus in this part of Romans is uh, the dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit. But it is always important to understand what Paul means when he uses that terminology. And it has been uh, misinterpreted often by people who want to view the world of the flesh as the physical material world and the world of the spirit as some invisible location somewhere else. And what Paul means when he uses the flesh is the whole of the human person, spiritual, mental, and emotional, that turns away from God. And last week I mentioned to you that it could be encapsulated in Father Thomas Keating's uh, irrational centers for happiness, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And our inability to get those things in balance is what causes most of the difficulty in human interaction and indeed in the human person's internal spiritual, emotional, and mental conflicts. So the spirit is the part of the human person, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, which is the means by which we are able to do something about bringing security and survival, affection and esteem and power and control into balance. And we can, as it says in the epistle today, uh, have an intimacy of God whereby we refer to him as Abba, you know, Daddy. So remember that that's what Paul is getting at and sort of leave all of the turgid reasoning uh, to the side. Maybe that'll help a little bit. But today, Genesis, Jacob, we continue this story. We've started out, we had a couple, we had Rebecca. And we had Isaac, and we have, last week, Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob are twins. They're not identical twins. They're fraternal twins. And they are born to Rebekah and to Isaac. Jacob tricks Esau out of his birthright. And Esau is now feeling... uh, irritated, to say the least, about the fact that he allowed this to happen. And so we open today this portion of the saga with Jacob on the run. He is a fugitive. Remember last week the theme was, can God work with these people? A pretty complex group. And Jacob has now run away. And Esau is going to come after him. And so he is in a place and he has a dream. This is a famous story. Even medieval writers on the spiritual life used, you know, the ladder 
up to heaven and the angels. In the Middle Ages, there was a great English writer on the spiritual life who wrote about the scale of perfection, Walter Hilton. And he talked about this, this ladder. But in the course of this, in the dream, Jacob receives some word from God. If you were to read this passage for meditative purposes, as Lectio Divina, they call it, uh, here's two, two lines you could take with you. Know that I am with you and will keep you. That's the word to each of us personally. God is present to you. Know that I am with you and will keep you. And elsewhere he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The people of God shall be blessed. And this is a word then to us individually and to the community corporately. And in this dream he realizes he's in a holy place. And he didn't realize that he was. And so at the end he decides to name the place Bethel. Now on one level, this is a story for the community out of which the, these stories emerged about the founding of the shrine at Bethel. Where did this shrine come from? Beth, house, home, dwelling. El, God, of God. So if you read it in Hebrew, Beth El, that's how you'd get Bethel, right? When I was in school, I grew up with all the kids in San Mateo from Temple Beth-El, right? The dwelling place of God. Now, what this passage is about is, can God work with these people? He's going to take a fugitive with no wife, no children, and no land. And he is going to use him for his purposes. And next week we're going to have Rachel and her sister, his future father-in-law Laban, tricks it. So he marries both of them. And then he's going to go move forward and he and Esau are going to meet up and it's going to be a story. It's like a big soap opera. <laughs> And it's about how God works with us. God works with God's people. And you never fear about that. Know that I am with you and will keep you. It's about God's forbearance. In fact, the overarching theme of those, these two readings for this Sunday is the forbearance of God. What in the world does forbearance mean? If you look it up, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary will say that forbearance can mean withholding enforcement. Like forgiving a debt. It can mean leniency. And it can mean patience. And one of the things that we see here is that God is patient with all of these people who are, as we would say these days, complex. And so too God is forbearing with each of us. In the Gospel for today, Matthew 
uh, Jesus is speaking the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Uh, I've been around for a long time, so it used to be called the tares and the wheat, not the weeds and the wheat. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And it's a story about a man who plants good seed in his field, and somebody, some enemy comes at night and plants weed seed in the, in the field. Uh, there is a writer, by the way, on gardening subjects uh, that I've read a couple of his books named Michael Pollan. And in this book that I remember, he writes uh, and says, a, a weed is a, is a plant in the wrong place. More on that in a minute. He also... Uh, has a whole chapter on why Americans have lawns. It's all started after the Civil War with the Scots Lawn Seed Company, who told everybody it would be good you can just have a lawn in your front house, in the front of your house. You know, I was a kid and grew up in the 1950s. Everybody had a lawn. So Michael Paul and says, I grew up in Long I- on Long Island, and we all had lawns. And one summer, my father decided that he wasn't going to mow the lawn. So he didn't mow the lawn, and the lawn got pretty high. In fact, it got all high, and as grass seeds, you know, began to produce seed, and it was all growing all over the place, the neighbor's we're fit to be tied. He's driving down the value with the property. What are we going to do? So one of the neighbors was deputed by uh, the other group and said, you got to go over there and you got to tell Poland that he's got to mow his lawn. So the guy goes over, rings his doorbell and Michael Pollan's father opens it up and he said, you know, I'm here from, there are a lot of us here, we're all very up, yada, 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 like that. You know, it took me a long time uh, as a young, when somebody comes up to you and says, there are a lot of people who are upset about, who are they? Name their names. Okay? So he, he says, uh, there are a lot of people upset about this and so on, and you just got to mow your lawn. He said, my father didn't say a word. He went to the garage He fired up his lawnmower and he came and mowed his initials in the lawn and shunt the mower off and put it back in the garage. (laughs) Chutzpah. (laughs) Now, where was I? (laughs) About the forbearance of God and the weeds and the wheat. So... Here's what I said last week and what will be true for the next few weeks. What did Jesus mean when he spoke this parable and what were his circumstances in his earthly ministry? What were the circumstances of the community that has preserved this parable now in written form from the oral tradition and kept it for posterity? And how do you and I take this parable in 2011 and make use of it, if at all, for our life and work? 
So what we're normally going to see here is, again today, the first part of the reading from the gospel, the first pair is Jesus' parable, the historic words of Jesus and reproduced faithfully. It's the parable as he spoke it. And his situation on the ground is this. He, in his earthly ministry, has begun to eat, to use the technical language, observe table fellowship with people who are ritually unclean, with outcasts, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, unsuitable people that the religious leadership of his world would say, you can't do this, this is unseemly. If you are saying the things that you are saying about how you now are bringing to our attention God's redeeming work and God's saving embrace, these are not the people you need to associate with. And the parable, as Jesus spoke it, is about this. You're in no position at this point to say who's in and who's out. The harvest is not yet ripe. And my work involves this, staying with both the weeds and the wheat. And we'll see about God's decision in this matter moving forward. All right, that's Jesus' situation. So two generations later, nearly, 85 A.D., Matthew. So we're reading along in the Gospel, and it says there's a transition. Jesus goes to a house, the disciples follow him, and they say to him, explain to us the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And this is Matthew. Matthew explaining it for his time in a community where people are arguing about who is suitable and unsuitable, who's in and who's out. The Jewish rabbi, now Christian, leading a Christian synagogue that is 80% Gentile. Do the Jews have to leave? Some of them are leaving of their own accord. Should the Gentiles be permitted to stay who were not observing any of the Jewish law, the Sabbath rules, the food rules, and so forth? Who's in and who's out? And the parable is, it's too soon to tell. That's not our job to do. We are to be forbearing as God is forbearing. So how might we use this parable? Well, one of the things is we need to be forbearing with other people. Reginald Fuller, the great New Testament scholar, he died about four years ago. He was in his 90s. He referred to Matthew's church and to our church these days in this article as a corpus per mixtum. 
I like to say that because Episcopalians always err on the side of the obscure, obscure and abstruse. So I've just done that for you. What it means in English is a mixed body. Church life, 2011, right? All kinds of people. Who's in and who's out? Who's acceptable and who's not acceptable? You know? So it can, it can have something to do with complete trivia, complete lack of knowledge about some arcana in the Episcopal faith and life, or it can have to do with people whose lifestyles, whose uh, political views, whose uh, economic circumstances don't seem to be worthy enough to have them in. So how do we, what do we do? It's not our job to choose. We err on the side of inclusion always. If there is a central message to Jesus' life and work, it is this. In me... In my earthly ministry, I am personifying the words of the great prophets of Israel who have said that the promises of the covenant offered to the people of the covenant are not just for us, but for everyone, and that God's saving embraces for everyone. And by virtue of that, you and I are to be the instruments of that inclusion and that embrace. Will there be people who may not make it in, at the very most, we should be agnostic about this and err on the side of inclusion and acceptance and forgiveness and love. So you can see that the parables are pretty useful. And that's why Jesus spoke to them. There's a lot of biblical scholarship that says, well, they were riddles, they were, they were hard to understand. He did this deliberately because he was trying to deceive uh, the authorities and talk in this kind of a way. As Father Hunt, my Old Testament professor at Neshota, used to say, you can believe that if you want to. They're pretty straightforward, really. Who's in and who's out. So this week, give thanks for God's forbearance. Give thanks for his abiding presence and look for the opportunities on your part to practice forbearance. Amen.